Good evening. I'd like to thank everybody for coming tonight. My name is Peter W. Jones, and I represent the publisher of this, this tome we have here in the front, um, uh, Fidelity Press. Uh, so we're very, very grateful to be here. There's a couple people I'd like to thank before we get started. Um, first off, he isn't here today, unfortunately, but Father Arnie, who many of you I'm sure know quite well, uh, is here in spirit for sure. Sorry, he couldn't be here in person, but he's in the Holy Land right now. Uh, he, he should be so lucky. I'm sure it's a fascinating trip. <coughs> and I'd like to thank especially his, his team here at the CIC that's done a fantastic job in, in setting up uh, the evening and promoting it, which we're very grateful for. And we also have here tonight Father C. John McCloskey III, who is a titan in these parts. I uh, wrote the foreword and the afterword for the books, so we're grateful to have him in attendance as well. Um, tonight, we have all the way over from England, John Beaumont. Uh, so we're very grateful that he can make it all the way over here. We're excited to be in this, this focal point of Catholicism here in, in the DC area. And uh, John is by, by training a lawyer, um, though with retiring from that profession, he's managed to spend more and more of his time focusing on which is conversion to the Catholic Church. So he'll be, he wrote a book previously on English and Irish converts titled Roads to Rome, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, and from the good response from that book, he decided to continue pursuing that path towards a book on American Catholic converts, which is substantially larger. Uh, so we're very grateful to have him tonight. And without further ado, Mr. John Beaumont. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, I'm very grateful to the CIC for uh, allowing me to speak tonight. Um, thanks also to uh, Peter himself, for, to Fidelity, the publishers, and particularly to Father McCloskey. Um, Father McCloskey uh, agreed to write a foreword, wrote that, and then uh, we uh, showed him the final text of the book. And to our surprise, he agreed to write an afterword. So uh, many thanks. Um, Peter um, did refer to a previous book I wrote. Uh, he did refer to the book being on English and Irish converts. Uh, but uh, we mustn't uh, forget the Welsh. Uh, and there are some Scots in there. But of course, some of them perhaps want to leave us at the moment, so they may disappear from the second edition. But they're there at the moment, anyway. So I'd like to talk to you tonight about the, uh, the new book. Um, really, uh, what I have to say to begin with is that um, if it hadn't been for one particular person, uh, the book would never have been written. Neither would the earlier book. And uh, that's Father Stanley Yarkey. Um, Benedictine physicist and priest. Uh, I see some of his books in the shop here, and I think he used to come here regularly to speak about his, his latest book. That would have involved quite a lot of visits because he wrote 50 books and some 500 articles. Of course, Father Yaki concentrated primarily on uh, the philosophy and the history of science. 
So why Father Yaki? Well, I had the privilege of working with him for about five years, and uh, he it was who set me off researching into converts. Why was that the case? Well, Father Yaki was concerned that the church today was rather playing down the process of conversion, uh, seemed to have lost some interest in it. He considered that was very disappointing indeed. Um, he showed to me on one occasion the details of uh, the statistics on conversions during the reign of Pope Pius Twelfth, And... Uh, well, that reign lasted only 19 years, from 1939 to 1958. But during that period, the increase in the number of converts every year was just enormous. In 1939, 65,000 people converted. In 1958, 140,000 people converted. Um, the seminaries during that period increased from 209 to 516. So frankly, when it comes to canonizing popes, hmm, my votes for past the 12th. Father Yaki was concerned about a trend towards subjectivism and relativism. Um, and of course, if one treats things as subjective and relative, well, the truth ceases to be important. And it was the truth he maintained that was important in respect of any conversion. He'd come across people, as I had on occasions, who had said to uh, a person, say, presently uh, a Methodist, or just stay a good Methodist, or just stay a good Congregationalist. You've no need to become a Catholic. Father Yaki considered that that was uh, completely incorrect and inconsistent with the teaching of the Church. And another factor that impelled him to encourage me was the work that he did on Newman, my fellow countryman, blessed John Henry Newman. If you look at uh, 19, uh, sorry, 1945, 1845, the year of Newman's conversion, you will see that a few days before that conversion, before he was received, he wrote about 30 letters to friends and relatives. In those letters he indicated that he was about to convert, and he re referred all the time to converting to the one true church, the one ark of salvation, the one way of salvation, these sort of phrases. Hilaire Belloc, not a convert, but a fervent Catholic, wrote that in a way there's no such thing, no such religion called Christianity. It's always been the church and the various heresies proceeding from a rejection of some of the church's doctrines by people who still desire to retain the rest of her teaching and morals. But there's never, he said, and there never can be a general Christian religion where you have agreement on central doctrines and you agree to differ on others. That's something that uh, is usually referred to as mere Christianity, referred in that way by uh, C.S. Lewis. And that great uh, writer is perhaps one of the weakest parts of his writings. I may come back to that. 
So he set me off uh, doing work on converts. It started out just making lists of converts of notable people. But it changed. The aim changed and it changed because I became aware of a consistent attack, not just on the Catholic Church, but on religion generally, by people who have become known as the new atheists. You have Daniel Dennett, Samuel Harris, we have Richard Dawkins, and Professor Stephen Hawking, and I suppose we both shared the late Christopher Hitchens, who was English but lived for quite a long time in the United States. These people have written with a, a real determination to uh, attack both Christianity, as I say, and the very existence of God. There also seemed to be something of a fifth column in the church itself. Um, I could give a notable examples. I suppose the, the worst one coming from my country is the example of John Cornwell, who wrote a, a really scurrilous book about Pius XII and has backed it up with a, a recent book on, uh, on the confessional in which he refers to the Curie of Ars as a spiritual fascist and attacks vigorously popes and Pius X. So, because of that, and because of Benedict VI and his emphasis against subjectivism and a, a greater emphasis on objectivism, the aim changed towards looking at conversion stories as means of defending the faith and as a part of the subject we call apologetics. And these conversion stories in many cases, do defend the faith with some vigor, with reasoned argument. Many of them are out of print, and also I think they're refreshingly easier to take on board than the, the more obscure or cold analysis that used to apply, perhaps before the council, because they are personalized. They're personal stories of people struggling very often against difficulties. So that's how the aim emerged, and I wrote a book on British and Irish converts and then decided to do one on American converts. The accounts that I have given deal with the individual in summary, their birth, death, where known, conversion, and uh, the arguments that they put forward for the faith. They became the crucial part. Sometimes when they were well known, critics had written about them, and I've extracted quotations from those criticisms on occasions. So, who gets in the book? How do you get in the book? Well, you have to be notable. But that's an ambiguous term. What does it mean? Well, it means notable to a great extent in respect of apologetic issues, as I've just mentioned. Now, there are some people who are so notable that they'd be in even if they wrote nothing for the reasons of their conversion. The saints, St. Elizabeth Seton, St. Kateri Tekakwitha, otherwise known as the Lily of the Mohawks, Orestes Brownson, said to be the Newman of the 19th century, Dorothy Day, those are obvious examples. People on the public stage? Well, yes. In the British book, I had almost finished it 
when one Tony Blair converted. Remember him? Okay, so do I, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry. Father Yaki said to me, if you put him in the book, I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> well, I did put him in the book. I had to put him in the book. He'd been received into the Catholic Church. But I also referred to the fact that his uh, voting record with regard to abortion was not perhaps as Catholic as it should have been. And of course, no request for him to make some public apology of that was ever made by the church authorities who received him. Um, the others who are in the book, some of them are completely unknown to us. We know their name, we don't know when they were born, we don't know when they died, we don't even know when they converted sometimes. But their account is very powerful, vigorously argued, and so they are included. And in some ways, perhaps they're more important than some of the uh, public political figures included. Living versus the dead. Do I put the living in? The dead are easier because they can't answer back. Well, not at the moment. Uh, the living, well, sometimes a difficult choice. I had to take advice because I'm not an expert on the current uh, scene in America. Um, and so, yes, I have included uh, living persons. I've also included reverts. You know what I mean? People who had lapsed and then came back to the faith because very often they gave very powerful arguments uh, for their uh, espousing the Catholic faith again. Next question, why do people become Catholic in the United States? They're all shapes and sizes, but that's what we would expect. Chesterton said that the church is a house with a hundred gates, and no two people enter at exactly the same angle. Traditionally, apologetics consists of three steps. Existence of God, provision of some revelation, i.e. the divinity of Christ, and the question of the church. I'll concentrate on the latter, but I'd like to say a little bit on the two other things. Well, <clears throat> briefly on the question of the existence of God. My message to you is not to worry about the new atheists in any way, shape, or form. Here's Professor Stephen Hawking recently. No need to invoke God, he says, to get the universe going, because there is the law of gravity. So the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, and why the universe and we exist. No need to invoke God, then, to light the blue touch paper. But hang on a minute. He's using sleight of hand, like a cheap magician. Frankly, he's trading on his reputation in the hope that we won't spot the trick. He says the universe can and will create itself from nothing. But just before he says that, he says it can only do this because there is the law of gravity. The obvious question from a 10-year-old is, well, where did the law of gravity come from? 
He's not shown that something can come from nothing. He's actually shown the opposite. There must be the laws of physics first, the law of gravity. I'm reminded by a statement of perhaps the greatest of all Englishmen, Dr. Dr. Johnson. This was a statement about Rousseau. A man who talks nonsense like this must know he's talking nonsense. So, let's not worry. It all emphasizes the cogency of the traditional arguments, the need for an eternal being who always existed and had no beginning. And if you look in the book, you'll see at the very least the entries for Avery Dulles, for Father Benedict Ashley, for Mortimer Adler, and to take one living writer, Edward Faser, his terrific refutation of new atheism in the last superstition. They are all brilliant arguments on the traditional lines. Unfortunately, supermarkets back home, they've got piles of Richard Dawkins in there. But unfortunately, they don't publish the responses, which are very powerful. So, moving on to the second issue, the divinity of Christ. Traditionally, American converts have emphasized, I think as non-Americans have, two types of argument. The historical argument and the logical or philosophical argument. Let's take the historical argument very briefly. This is Joe Sobran, a convert, who I admire immensely. And he's debating with Christopher Hitchens, in print. This is what Sobran says. It defies belief to suppose that four simple evangelists could have made up the most memorable, influential, and lovable character in human history, besides whom Muhammad is a mere ghost. If it's that easy, let Christopher Hitchens try his hand at the fakery that he ascribes to Christians. A few beatitudes, a couple of parables would satisfy me. If the Gospels are packs of lies, then Christianity is the most brilliant hoax of all time. How could a few unlettered Jews invent Christ and then make the story tally with the Old Testament prophecy? Powerful stuff, I think. And there's much more from other American converts. The philosophical argument, well, it comes from a long way back, longer than I thought until recently. An article by Paul Brazier in a recent edition of the Heathrop Journal shows that this, uh, this argument comes right out of 2,000 years of tradition. It can be found in the Gospels. It can be found in St. Paul, found in the patristic and medieval period. And there's a form of it in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. But we've sort of approached it in recent years through St. Augustine, a few references to Thomas More, but most immediately through two Englishmen, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis. And as an Englishman, I have to thank the Americans for boosting the reputation of both men particularly of Chesterton. 
Chesterton is virtually unknown still in my country, though some work has been done. He's known for the Father Brown stories, but in a way he's not known for them. The latest uh, serialization on the television, according to one critic, well, the people who produced it got it right in one respect. The leading character was called Father Brown. But that was all, I'm afraid. Lewis is remarkable in that the great majority of converts to the Catholic faith, when they're asked about their influences, they cite converts or Catholics, either cradle Catholics or converts to Catholicism. But many of them these days move straight from C.S. Lewis to the Catholic Church. And yet Lewis himself never became a Catholic for various reasons which... uh, have been dealt with in the, the literature. Primarily his uh, Aboriginal Ulster Northern Ireland Protestantism, Protestantism I think. <clears throat> so what's the argument then? Well, the argument essentially says that other founders of religion primarily taught doctrine, whereas Christ primarily claimed to be someone. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, as Lewis says, He talked as if he was God. He claimed to forgive sins. He said he always existed. He said he was coming to judge the world at the end of time. Wow. Awesome, isn't it? Just think, if you, before you came here, you were walking down the street and somebody came up to you and said those things to you, what would your reaction be? Well, call the men with white coats, I think, in a van to take this person away. And of course, this is the crux of the argument, that the one thing Chesterton and Lewis say, you can't say, is that this is a good man. You can't say this is a good ethical teacher, because good men do not say things of that kind. I'm afraid you've got to make, well, possibly three responses. Bad, mad, or God. There have been others raised, but they are less important, I think, and these are the powerful ones. Well, can anyone really believe that the Sermon on the Mount was the discourse of a madman? Of course not. The parable of the prodigal son, the Lord's Prayer, Joe Sobran comes in again and says, uh, invent a saying worthy of Christ. I'll give you a prize. Nobody succeeded in doing it. Avery Dulles says, uh, who else ever spoke with comparable assurance of the things of God? So to Dorothy Day, Christ is God or he's the world's greatest imposter. Flannery O'Connor, not a convert, of course, a cradle Catholic, said, as for Jesus being a realist, If he was not God, he was no realist, and the crucifixion was an act of justice. The argument is also used by Aquinas, but it's used in the context of the sin of pride. Aquinas claims that it would be the height of pride if he was not God, but only a man. I am meek and humble of heart, he says. The argument is a strong one. It's put forward 
so solidly by American converts that it's particularly noticeable, this Chesterton-Lewis approach. Anyway, let me turn now to, uh, to the church and ask why the church. There are, I think, 469 characters in the book. The book is obviously well over a thousand pages long. Who are the main influences? Newman, Chesterton, Thomas Aquinas. But of course, many people include all three. Many people include none of them. So why the church and which church? Well, to take Newman, for instance, in a letter to a a gentleman, he said, even Scripture says that we must join the church. And the creed talks about the church as being one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The early fathers dealt with the question of a person going to a strange town. They said, don't ask for the church because the heretics claim to have the church. Ask for the Catholic church and you will be directed aright. So what are the main factors then that people put forward um, in this country and to to a great extent in my own for which church to join? Well, I'll take a number of the most important ones as I've gleaned them from uh, from reading these people. First of all, the visibility of the church. The word church is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's never used in a purely spiritual sense. So Sheldon Van Oken says that the invisible church, the purely spiritual church, was never heard of until the 16th century. Several of these converts refer to the church as a concrete, visible institution which embodied a unity even as early as the apostolic age. Carl Olson talks about God working through physical things, visible things, the incarnation, the church. And then there's universality, or what we can call Catholicity, the Catholic note of the church. The historian Carlton Hayes criticizes European nationalism and put it down to a breakdown in Catholic... Sorry, European nationalism, and put it down to a breakdown of Catholic internationalism. Haywood Brown said that once he became a Catholic, he felt at home everywhere. Geoffrey Steenson talks about the joy of belonging to a really big family. And Edward Dodson talks about the rich and the poor next to each other, next to each other in the church. This, uh, he said, was real democracy. Dorothy Day emphasizes that and emphasizes the, the presence of the poor there, which she found in the cities that she visited. So it's people of all different ages and all different colors. Then there's continuity. They're looking for a church unbroken from the apostles to us. They're looking for a line of popes, a line of authority. They see the early fathers as being Catholic. Okay, the church develops, but as Newman so profoundly wrote, 
it remains the same at the same time. So Peter Kreef talks about the same old seaworthy ship, Noah's Ark, that Jesus commissioned. The whole ark still sailing unscathed on the sea of history. Avery Dulles talks about the fact that through all the ages, the treasure of faith has been preserved intact. But it's not just continuity. Continuity connotes endurance. And it's not just endurance. It's endurance in astonishing circumstances. Why? Because of the terrible things that can happen in the church, in church history. We all know about the current crisis in relation to sexual abuse. But there's much more than that. There are many, thankfully, great popes. But the behavior of son was not too good. Let me just take not the Borgia Pope, perhaps overstated that one. Let me take Stephen VI, reigning from 1896, sorry, 896 to 897. Stephen exhumed his predecessor, Formosus, and had his rotting remains put on trial. He gave him counsel to argue for him, because he couldn't argue for himself. Of course, he was found guilty, stripped of his vestments, and tossed in the Tiber. Not very good, really, I think. <laughs> what happened to Stephen? He was strangled to death. And then there was Benedict the Ninth, who sold his office to his successor and led such a notorious lifestyle that one saint called him a demon from hell in the disguise of a priest. There's the sack of Constantinople in 1204 by the Crusaders, killing and raping hundreds of people. As Flannery O'Connor said, sometimes you have to suffer as much from the church as for the church. But such failings don't discredit the church. They actually prove it. Here's Julian Green. Not all that well known, I think, in this country. Julian Green wrote all his books in French and lived almost all his life in France, but he was an American citizen, and when the French government insisted on giving him various rewards, he adamantly refused them. No, I'm American. Here's Julian Green. It's not the saints that one has to talk about if one is to prove the sanctity of the church. It's bad priests and bad popes. A church governed by saints continues on. That's normal and human but a church that can be governed by villains and imbeciles and still continue, that's neither normal nor human. There are many stories, some no doubt apocryphal, but they all go back to the same theme. Napoleon is supposed to have said to Cardinal Consalvi, don't you realize that if I wished, I could destroy the church? Consalvi replied, your majesty, even we clerics have not managed to do that in nearly 2,000 years. Hilaire Belloc again once truly remarked that the church must be in God's hands because seeing the people who have run it, it couldn't possibly have gone on existing if there weren't some help from above. Walker Percy, 
asked in an interview, Isn't the Catholic Church in a mess these days? Badly split? The liturgy barbarized? Vocations declining? Sure, he says. That's a sign of its divine origins, that it survives these periodic disasters. Authority. The church claims to be protected from error. That's necessary if she is to withstand the gates of hell. That factor, very significant amongst many converts. Christopher Huntington, impressed by Cardinal Fowlharbour in Cologne attacking the Nazi beliefs, saw that the true church could not claim any less than the cardinal was claiming. Scott Hahn, notable recent uh, convert, he says this, how many churches have applied for the job of being pillar and foundation of truth? I know of only one, the Catholic Church. And those claims have been around for 2,000 years. And it's unthinkable that the true church would say, no, we're not the true church. The true church has at least to make that claim, even if the claim is actually false. Beauty is very often a factor. Some saw the faith as not only true, but in the words of Thomas Stork, as compellingly attractive and beautiful. Several people were attracted by medieval architecture, plus Gregorian chant, the philosophy of Aquinas, illuminated manuscripts. Some would argue, of course, that that beauty, and I'd be with them, has been to some extent played down in recent years and underemphasized. Justine Ward, who lived from 1879 to 1975, was the doyen of writers on Gregorian chant. I reckon when she lived, uh, when she died rather, she was pretty disappointed because the church had tended to neglect it. It has made something of a comeback recently, thank goodness. Father Zulsdorf, the blogger, you probably know of, another convert who said that the church has given us a twofold legacy of beauty. There's art and there's the saints. The Mass. Peter Burnett, the first governor of uh, California, attended a midnight mass. He said he had never seen anything so beautiful and so moving before. Daniel Sargent appreciated or came to appreciate the mass as a sacrifice, as God's own sacrifice. John Senior, major writer at the University of Kansas, who ran a course on the great books and made many, many converts indeed refers to Christian culture as existing mainly to perpetuate the mass. Art, architecture, various social forms and the way that people live to foster and protect the mass. The real presence. Numerous converts refer to the reverence that they saw exhibited by Catholics at mass and benediction which set them thinking Several read the early fathers and how these fathers attacked the heretics for not admitting that the Eucharist was the flesh of, the, of our Savior Jesus Christ. Obviously the Blessed Virgin. Many acknowledged cries for help to her, including, for example, St. Elizabeth Seton herself. And then there's the living examples of holiness characterized by the saints. 
Daniel Sargent himself refers to French priests working under fire in the First World War, bringing the sacraments to the wounded. And even visits to shrines have led to conversions, notably two writers, Francis Parkinson Keyes and Fulton Ursler. The moral teaching of the church. Many recent converts have seen the church as a sign of contradiction and as opposing the main plank of secular humanism, namely sexual liberation. So, for example, many have entered the church because of her stance on abortion. Elizabeth Fox Genovese moves from a, a left-wing feminist position because of those uh, factors. Jennifer Ferrara, the film director Jason Jones, Horatio Stora, the 19th century uh, um, worker to try to persuade governors of states to appreciate that the English common law had made criminal the uh, ill treatment of the unborn child right from the point of conception. And then, more recently, there's Bernard Nathanson, a notorious uh, abortionist who converted and wrote a very moving story of his conversion. There's Nellie Gray and the March for Life. There's the actress Patricia Neal, who had an abortion after an affair early in her career with Gary Cooper and uh, suffered trauma for really the rest of her life. And then finally, there's Norma McCorvey. Who's Norma McCorvey? Well, she's Jane Rowe of Rowe and Wade, who then acted on behalf of life issues and the church. Finally, let me say something about deathbed converts in this context. There are quite a number of cases of deathbed converts in history and, of course, in the pages of uh, fiction. Have you ever heard of a person on their deathbed shout out, bring me a minister of the United Reformed Church? <laughs> well, the response shows, I think, that that's a pretty rare occurrence and, of course, in fiction it doesn't occur at all. I'm thinking of uh, Lord Marchmain and Brideshead Revisited, of course. Well, actions speak louder than words sometimes, and there is the witness of example. Some people have been affected just by good, charitable behavior on the part of their neighbors and brought into the church in that way. There are numerous examples. I have referred to some of them, although their argument is... Uh, um, in a sense, is less reason, but, uh, but I think more understandable. So, the conclusion I came to, well, all shapes and sizes. The book is really a parade of American history. From the, the Revolution, there's Thomas Sim Lee, later governor of Maryland. From the Civil War, there's the Confederate General James Longstreet, and many more soldiers from that uh, terrible period. You meet the Alamo defender, Jim Bowie, who didn't, in fact, invent the knife. The knife was invented by his brother, also a convert. There's Kit Carson, and maybe for the most time, on the other side, there's Chief Black Elk. And there's Buffalo Bill, a deathbed convert. There's Sherman Minton, a Supreme Court justice who ruled against racial segregation. And there's Robert Bork, 
who never became a Supreme Court Justice because the, uh, the thing, I'm afraid, didn't prevail. And then there's the spies. There's Elizabeth Bentley. There's uh, the communist radical Bella Dodd and the radical journalist Louis Boudens. All three of those have a common link, and that's the work of Archbishop Fulton Sheen just after the war. And then there are the literary figures. Wallace Stevens, the poet, a deathbed convert. Tennessee Williams, sometimes said to be a convert for one day only. I think that is a slight understatement. There's the marvelous Walker Percy, who talks brilliantly about the dislocation of modern man and about the limits of science. There's Robert Lyle, Lowell, sorry, the poet, who uh, was Episcopalian, became a Catholic. That was in 1941. In 1944, he went back to Episcopalianism. In 1949, he became a Catholic. In 1955, he went back to Episcopalianism. Gracious me. And then there's Hemingway, perhaps one of the most controversial of all literary figures in this respect, treated almost always as either nominal or bogus Catholic. But the work of H.R. Stoneback in New York in the last uh, 10, 15 years has established that, uh, yeah, that Hemingway was much more of a Catholic uh, than that. I've included numerous extracts from his work, and since time moves on, I won't deal with it uh, just, just now. Science. Of course, it's one of the great myths of Catholic history, isn't it, that uh, the church was against science. Not at all. Father Stanley Yaki, of course, was a living example of the, the scholarship uh, that the, the Catholic church promoted. So there's Gertie Corey, who was the first American female Nobel Prize winner in the area of science. There's John von Neumann, the uh, logician and mathematician, sometimes said to be the model for Dr. Strangelove in the Kubrick movie. There's another model in the form of Sylvanus Morley, the archaeologist. Yeah, he's probably Indiana Jones, or maybe a version of him. There's uh, Karl Landsteiner, one of the, uh, the great founders of immunology. And there's Edward Lee Green, a very much neglected uh, but profound botanist. Let me finish by going from the sublime to the ridiculous. The sublime is the sanctity of the saints. Elizabeth Seton, Saint Elizabeth Seton, founder, of course, of a, a, a religious order, a new religious order, the first native-born citizen of the United States to be canonized. You probably know much more about her than I do. Um, no need to say anything more about her. So let me turn to the, is it the other side of the coin? This is Arthur Simon Flegenheimer. Come across him, anybody? Arthur Simon Flegenheimer, born in the Bronx in 1901. Father abandoned the family, and so Arthur got involved in crime, pretty serious crime. Leads on to the Prohibition period. Liquor brought in from Canada. He became very rich. Later it's the numbers rackets and it's extortion and killing off of his rivals. 
His longtime opponent was Thomas Dewey, the politician. Eventually, he was shot by hitmen in the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. He didn't die immediately. He wasn't very well. He had several bullet holes in him, but he survived a little bit longer, and at his request, a Catholic priest was called. The priest baptized him. He'd never been baptized. He was given the last rites. This was Father Cornelius McInerney, and he died later on the same day. He was buried in the Gate of Heaven Cemetery, Catholic ground, Westchester County, New York. This is Dutch Schultz, okay? Dutch Schultz. And in the book, everybody is given a title. You know, priest, educator, film actress, scholar, mobster. <laughs> there was outrage. The media of the time was appalled. This is a church, they said, that has the horror of the slightest sin. But you're beckoning into your fold a man whose whole life is to be condemned. What about these poor characters who struggle through, who behave perfectly properly, and then right at the end, as it were, fell away? can happen. Well, some good priests wrote about the issue. And the points they made were as follows. First of all, only one person can judge a whole life, and that, of course, is God. And there's no crime that can't be forgiven if the person is truly contrite. And don't forget the role of grace. He wasn't killed at once. He had a chance. He had a chance to make his peace with God. We don't know whether it was a, a true conversion or not, but uh, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And the priest said, or one of the priests said, it doesn't mean that the church is condoning this sin or sins. And we should worry more about ourselves because not many people are given a deathbed choice. And remember, finally, our Lord and the penitent thief traditionally known as Dismas. So, Dutch Schultz may have made it, and rightly so, I'd submit. He actually had a good wife, and this is a common theme throughout conversion, not just in this country, but in other countries. His wife had been praying for him solidly, that he'd see the light, and perhaps he did. So, the book is about one particular issue, really. It's not about politics. It's not about becoming a Catholic as just an add-on to being an American. What the characters in this book are emphasizing is the need for a real conversion. And that can only be based on the truth. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, I'm 
glad you mentioned prayer at the end of the end of your talk. I think that's an important aspect of yeah, course. as well. Another uh, aspect you hinted at or touched on uh, the role of miracles. And I'm thinking one of my favorite converts, John Thayer, who was the first American Protestant clergyman to become Catholic. Yep, yeah. Rabre, yes. Yeah, that's right, yeah. He, he's... <laughs> oh, gosh, there are so many. <laughs> I can't even start. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, Thayer is in the book, obviously, in doubt with in some detail. Um, I, I sort of tend to run together individuals. All, all I can say is that there are, yes, a lot. That happens quite frequently, um, not just in America, of course, but... Uh, the famous uh, Jewish converts, the Ratisbon brothers, another example of it. Um, uh, yeah, so it obviously I was trying to refer to the major themes, really, and the major themes when people write about their conversion is something like um, the, the, I think I, I dealt with ten, perhaps nine or ten, um, people who convert through uh, miracles tend to write about the miracle and how it affected them as a particular individual. But, uh, yes, that's it. It's the grace of God, isn't it? Acting on a particular individual, which is back to the Dutch Schultz uh, example, I think, perhaps. Yes. Yes. Um, I have to confess, I've no idea. <laughs> and I do apologize. Is there somebody else, I'm sure? I think you. Sorry. Well, no, no, no. It isn't off the topic at all. I mean, there are these controversial cases, which we. Uh, George Washington, of course, is, is one. Uh, I was sent a book, The Spirituality of George Washington. And, of course, he was very friendly, I think, with Jesuits. Uh, and there are stories that maybe he converted. I, I did pursue it. I read about it on the Internet. And uh, there are numerous articles. And I concluded that, well, I had doubts and thought perhaps he shouldn't uh, be in the book. I should perhaps have done what I did with the other book which was to write two appendices with a Capuchin priest, Father Mark Elvins, um, on the question of King Edward VII and King George V, who were both of whom were very um, pro-Catholic, if you like. Um, I think the evidence for Edward VII is greater than the evidence for George V. Almost certainly George V's queen did become a Catholic. I didn't include them in the book, I simply put them in as appendices with the arguments put forth. I did think of doing that with regard to George Washington, but, um, well, it's over a thousand pages long, and uh, there was a bit of pressure on me. Sitting Bull is another one, I think. I think the argument is probably no, he didn't become a Catholic. Sometimes it's confused with certain other Native Americans who did, and there's quite a lot of them. I mentioned one, Chief Black Elk, of course. So... Uh, no, I uh, I don't know the answer to that one. Before I came in, somebody did say, well, 
are you going to write something else on this theme? Um, I did say, well, I suppose the obvious title to a third volume is The Rest. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Of course, some countries, it's almost all reverts. I did a bit of work on, uh, on France and the, uh, the famous late 19th century decadence, um, Paul Claudel, Adolphe Rete, people of that kind, um, uh, and almost all of them are, uh, are reverts. But um, whether I could make it through uh, the rest of them, I don't know. I don't know. But there are some great figures, of course. Sigrid Unset from Norway, about whom Father Yaki wrote a, a wonderful book. I cannot recommend too highly Christine Lavran's data and the, the other book. Um, and they're pretty long reads, so, uh, you know, you'd be there for a while. But, uh, yeah, so I don't know is the answer to that one. Yes, any other uh, question? Yes, hello. Right. In the 19th century, both in my country and, I think, uh, in yours, it primarily comes from Protestant uh, conversions, from Protestant denominations. In my country, of course, from the Church of England greatly, at the time of the Oxford movement. Um, I wouldn't say the emphasis is quite as great in your country, but I think, yes, from Protestantism. Um, in this century as we come up to date, well, conversion from almost anything, really. And one of the difficulties, uh, perhaps I should have mentioned this, with regard to uh, uh, what? The Dead and the Living, is that I've put in the book sometimes a more detailed account, a lengthier account, of somebody who is still living and is not anywhere near as famous, really, as somebody who is dead not because the faith changes, but because the, the emphasis changes on arguments which are compelling. So, for example, in the 40s and the 50s, everybody knew the New Testament to a certain extent, perhaps uh, to a considerable extent. But now people know nothing about what the New Testament is and very little about what Christianity is. Uh, I have a cousin who is a, an Anglican, educated woman. She worships at uh, Litchfield Cathedral in, in England. Uh, I met her again after I became a, a convert, uh, after a long break, and she said, tell me, do Catholics believe in the divinity of Christ? Wow. <laughs> and of course, um, in my country, the, the, the misconception is that because the Anglicans have all the old buildings, the famous cathedrals, that they are the old religion and that the Catholics are the new religion. But as Newman said, well, go into history into some depth and you cease to be Protestant. But these people haven't because there's a sort of establishment tie to the, uh, to the established church. I have another friend who is... Uh, um, I was teaching in a law school and he came to see me and he said, you're Catholic, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I think I am, but you won't agree with me. Uh, he was an Anglo-Catholic, a high Anglican. 
He believed in the Immaculate Conception. He believed in the Assumption of Our Lady. Had a great devotion to John Henry Newman. But, well, unless a miracle happens, so keep praying for him, he won't become a Catholic. And why is that? Because of the sort of establishment pressures, you know. It's nice to be English. And this sort of notion, this notion that... uh, Elizabeth I and her minions, who were really pirates, of course, uh, were great heroes of the faith. Uh, I don't, that doesn't answer your question. Well, in a sense, it tries to answer your question. The simple answer is, uh, yeah, in the 19th century and before, mostly from other Christian denominations, in the 20th century, yeah, even through the early parts of the 20th century, the converts, certainly in my country, were coming, and they were very notable figures. Um, Chesterton himself, um, Graham Greene, uh, Evelyn Waugh, were coming from, um, generally from the Church of England. Yes? Yeah, I mean, if you go on the internet, there are some lists of converts. There are lots of mistakes in those lists, people who didn't actually convert. So I I sort of just gathered them together. I was particularly impressed with some American writing. Father John O'Brien, who was at Notre Dame in the early 60s, did a, a series of books, five volumes, The Road to Damascus. And they are conversion stories, not just of Americans, but of, uh, of British as well. And then there's, um, and I always forget her name, so I must just look it up, Georgiana Pell Curtis, who again wrote two books of accounts of convert stories. And they are one absolutely wonderful accounts. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so one started from there, and names were gathered, I wrote three booklets, well, four booklets, one on, this was all Britain, 20th century, 19th century, and then earlier. And then uh, I wrote a, a little pamphlet on converts from Judaism because uh, I thought that was a particularly significant area to come from. Um, and I put my email address in and people sent me emails. And uh, a number of them then worked as unpaid research assistants I'd done that for Father Yaki, basically. So I got my own back on these people, and uh, they were very good at... Uh, some people are, are really good at Googling and uh, you know, finding out material. So gradually it grew and grew and grew. Um, so far, but it's early days, nobody's pointed out a real howler of an omission. Um, one will come, um, undoubtedly... The earlier book, which will go into a second edition sometime soon, or at least a supplement, there was one biggie, as it were. Um, I was in Leeds in England, and I was writing 20 miles from York. One of the great martyrs of the Catholic faith is St. Margaret Clitheroe. She was pressed to death in York. And... I knew she was a convert. Her husband never converted. I knew she was a convert. I had been on the yearly, um, well, they they have a mass in her honor. In fact, the very first one was allowed by the Anglican authorities in York Minster. It was the first mass said, it was said in the old rite as well, in the Tridentine rite. The first mass said there, I think, for something like 
450 years. I should add to that that the, uh, the priest at the church, which is just across the road, St. Wilfred's, the Catholic priest, wouldn't let them have a Tridentine Mass. They had to go to the Anglicans who said, yes, come along. And there were crowds of people came. Then there was a procession past the house, Margaret Clitheroe's house, which is still there, and past the remains of the, the building where she was pressed to death by the, the River Ouse, and then to a church, uh, the uh, English Martyrs Church, where there was veneration of a relic of hers, which is her hand, which is in the Bar Convent, uh, followed by benediction. And uh, I missed her out. <laughs> but only one person has ever come up with the, the point. Somebody who was helping to sell the books in, in Britain sent me an email saying, what happened? The book was reviewed by numerous people and nobody, nobody got it. Uh, um, I have a friend who every time I see this friend mentions it to me. <laughs> They're no friend anymore. So, uh, yeah. Yes? Thomas Merton. Uh, no, he he is a convert. Um, Merton perhaps is a difficult figure. I want to get into controversy here. Um, the early works, uh, I think, are really solid. Seven Story Mountain and the book by is it uh, Matt about the uh, the early conversion of uh, Merton, who spent a lot of his time in France and then at Oxford uh, and converted and wrote very well about it. Um, I think some people in recent years have started to criticize the later period, the, um, uh, the Buddhist sort of um, conferences that he went to. As you probably know, he was electrocuted, wasn't he? He was at a conference in is it Thailand, I think, and uh, he was electrocuted by a fan heater on getting out of the shower. Um, he was very interested in um, relations with other religions, some people think that uh, some of his writing had become sort of syncretist and not particularly Catholic in his later years. I don't think I know enough to, to comment, but undoubtedly he was a Catholic convert. And yes, I've included some significant uh, quotations from the book. The book, I didn't write the book, by the way. I, the, the books, I edited the book, primarily. That's what the book's about. It's not about me. It's about these people writing about the reasons for their conversion. Okay, I wrote quite a long preface in which I put some of my own thoughts, and then Father McCloskey kindly wrote the foreword, and then very cleverly said to me, well, yeah, here are all these arguments, all these sort of philosophical and reasoned arguments and historical and scriptural arguments, but that's not enough because you've got to know how to convert people, how to persuade them. And people aren't, you don't just go to people and reason them into the church, as I found out to my own cost. When I became a Catholic, I thought it was just simple, go and see all my friends and they'd all become Catholics. <laughs> they didn't. They really didn't. A few did, but not very many. I wasn't very successful, so I'm obliged to the afterword, which puts it in a more practical context. Gentleman, uh, Frank, yes. I think the arguments put forward are very similar, are really very similar. Um, sometimes, of course, people drop out because of moral issues that arise in their lives, and then they take up the, 
the thing again when those moral issues are resolved. But there have been a number of people who have uh, uh, just left the church. And perhaps they left it during their adolescence, or sometimes they left it because they misunderstood certain things, or they disliked what the church was doing at the time, and then later on came back. There are some people in the book who never came back, but who I was of the opinion had given good arguments in the first place, and sometimes I couldn't really understand why they'd not come back. From my own country, uh, I talked about the communists in, in this country, Douglas Hyde was uh, for some time the editor of the Daily Worker, a major communist paper. This was uh, uh, just after the war. He and his wife converted, and he wrote a book called I Believed, which talked about the, uh, his, his disillusionment with communism and his finding the Catholic Church. It's fine writing. Later on, he became imbued with the the sort of early writings on liberation theology. I think before Cardinal Ratzinger commented on that uh, phenomenon, he left the church. Was Graham Greene a Catholic? Uh, some people would say he was never a Catholic. Some people think it was just uh, he wanted to marry Vivian and so he converted. I don't think that's altogether true and there's real Catholic issues dealt with in his book, Catholic Themes. But uh, towards the end of his life, he was talking about himself as a, as a Catholic atheist, the term he used, which is uh, not exactly full square with the Orthodox faith. as a, a specific convert and uh, yeah and certainly on the moral issues uh, that Augustine is a very powerful influence isn't he if you read the uh, the confession so yes in fact um, yeah he'd appear almost as many times in in the book um, as uh, say St. Thomas would uh, and there are other great writers who uh, um, I've mentioned Newman um, in the 19th century, there were, there were several others less well-known than Newman, obviously. Uh, Father Faber, perhaps, uh, being one, who appealed to a, a different form, perhaps a, a more sentimental, dare I say it, form of, uh, of Catholicism. Jared uh, um, Manley Hopkins, who himself was converted by Newman. I've come across people who have uh, found, you know, great uh, solace in, in Hopkins' uh, prayers, particularly those of, sorry, poems, particularly those of a, of a, a philosophical bent, I would have thought. Uh, mm. But, yeah, Chesterton particularly is notable, and I mentioned C.S. Lewis, and I, I do find that a strange one in a way, because of Lewis's uh, not actually becoming a Catholic. I can't think of anybody else who falls into that category, uh, a really significant factor in people becoming Catholic, of somebody who never became one. Some people argue that he was a closet Jesuit the whole way through, <laughs> but uh, I know it's too sophisticated an argument, I think. And the weakness, of course, is this idea of mere Christianity, that, yes, you come... His arguments for the existence of God and for the divinity of Christ are, are tremendous in mere Christianity. But then he comes to the point, well, which of these enormously long number of denominations do you join... 
well, church is a house and it's got loads of rooms and just pick a room which you're attracted by. That's probably something of a simplification of his argument, but it, it's completely un-Catholic, of course. Um, and, well, many writers have suggested that he would undoubtedly have become a Catholic today, bearing in mind the state of the Church of England. And as I said earlier, Christopher Derrick, perhaps the most notable book on, uh, on the reason why um, Lewis didn't become a Catholic, because he was one of his students, um, he indicates that it's the, the northern, it's the Ulster Protestantism which is there, right from the start. Okay, anybody else? Yes? Intellectual barrier. Um, using that term intellectual in a wide, uh, sort of very wide, all-encompassing sense, um, our Lady, of course, is, is a difficulty with regard to many. The papacy is primarily because of a misunderstanding between the person of the Pope and the office of the papacy. Um, Norman St. John Stevens, who was a politician in my country, a sort of liberal, I don't like to use these terms, liberal Catholic, but I suppose he would use it, so I can use it. Um, he thoroughly admired Pope John Paul II in his early years because he said, he's such a vigorous man. This is wonderful. As if the papacy was about being strong and muscular. And the obvious retort is, well, what about when he became ill and he could hardly walk? And John XXIII, he wouldn't be playing in any uh, sort of athletic contest, really. Um, ridiculous. It's the office, isn't it, as opposed to the person. And I think when that is understood by potential converts, they appreciate uh, the truth. So I would think those two things are particularly notable, the things that I've seen. And, of course, the, the general problem of the church and things that happen in the church. And many of these things are, are wrongly understood. Galil the Galileo case, absolute classic, isn't it, really, uh, of a, a complete misunderstanding. But everybody comes up with the Galileo case and ignores completely the church's role in fostering science and uh, pushing things of this kind, the observatories and all of this, and the uh, priests being involved with, um, with various scientific um, breakthroughs in cosmology and things that are relevant, perhaps, to the, uh, the existence of God. Yes? <laughs> well, I don't think it's very strong. I think there is evidence that he led a spiritual life which developed. But yeah, lots of people developed their spiritual life. Um, and then there was a link, I think, some friendship with, with various Jesuits. Um, and that's about it as far as I could see. But then one particular article, I, I forget, it'll be in the book, obviously, referred... Uh, no, it won't be in the book because I didn't put him in the book, did I? Of course. Um, but it's on the net and you will find it. it I, I thought it was a pretty scholarly piece of work and indicated... No, uh, the, the case was pretty threadbare, threadbare really. 